welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to look at Exodus 11. Just as a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word. So today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 11, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology in that chapter. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading today from Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And so Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Well, this is our reading today from Exodus chapter 11. Well, the plague of darkness proved once and for all that Pharaoh was not the son of light. And yet, even after the God of Israel proved that he alone ruled both night and day, the king of Egypt continued to have delusions of deity. Now, in his final audience with Moses, he made the most outrageous claim that he held the power of life and death, saying to God's prophet in Exodus 10:28, The day you see my face, you will die. Now, if these words sound familiar, it's because they were later spoken by the one true God. When Moses went up the mountain and asked to see God's glory, he was told in Exodus 33:20, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. This was a danger the prophet seemed to have sensed instinctively, because back at the burning bush, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God in Exodus 3.6. You see, God is so awesome in his holiness that to see him is to perish. And thus, for Pharaoh to assert that same power for his own countenance was an act of sheer arrogance. He was claiming a prerogative that belonged to the Lord alone. And after all the wonders that God had performed, Pharaoh still pretended to rule over life and death. And so it was necessary for God to send another plague, the deadliest of them all. 
Exodus 11 is really a continuation of the conversation begun in chapter 10 of Exodus, Moses' last audience with Pharaoh. Verses 1 through 3 reiterate things God had already revealed to his prophet. And then in verses 4 through 8, Moses is taking his parting shot, announcing the tenth and the final plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn sons. It is only at the end of verse 8 that the prophet finally makes his dramatic exit. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And this is followed by a statement summarizing the plagues and their purpose in the plan of salvation in verses 9 through 10 of Exodus 11. Now, chapter 11 is the place where the Bible finally uses the actual Hebrew word for plague, meaning strike or blow. In fact, verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And this statement, which announces that we are nearing the end of the plagues, it marks a good place to summarize the main lessons to be learned from these wonders. What do the plagues teach us about God's divine attributes? Well, first, the plagues teach us that the Lord is almighty. He holds absolute power over everything that he has made. The book of Genesis, it shows that the Lord is the creator, the God who made everything out of nothing and brought order out of chaos. The book of Exodus shows that God still rules over his creation. As we've seen, the plagues were creation reversals. God turned order into chaos and then brought it back into order again, miraculously revealing his power over the earth and the sky. As Moses explained before the plague of hail, God performed these wonders so the Egyptians would know that the earth is the Lord in Exodus 9.29. The Lord is a mighty God. Second, the plagues teach that God is a jealous God, that he will not share his glory with anyone else. And so the Egyptians turned away from God to put their confidence in gods of their own invention. They chose to idolize everything from beetles to cattle and to worship everything from Hapi to Amun Re. Now, the words from the Apostle Paul describe the situation well in Romans 1, 21 through 23, which says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is an exchange that God will not tolerate. And so one by one, he defeated Egypt's object of worship. The Lord is a jealous God. Well, third, the plagues teach us that God is a just God, that in his righteousness, he deals with people according to their sins. Pharaoh was a cruel and a wicked despot, And in his rebellion against God, he deliberately tried to destroy God's people. And the Lord stopped at nothing, slavery, servitude, slaughter, and for their part, the Egyptians willingly carried out Pharaoh's orders to oppress the Israelites. And so when God afflicted them with rivers of blood, swarms of bugs, storms of hail, and days of darkness, he was giving them what they deserved. The Lord is a God of justice. For the plagues teach us that God is a merciful God. God saves the needy when they cry out for deliverance. In fact, the Exodus was set in motion by the prayers of the people of God, as we see in Exodus 2, 23-24, which says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant. 
Now, the plagues were an answer to prayer because, by God's mercy, they finally led Israel out of Egypt. Fifth, the plagues teach that God is sovereign, that his mercy and his justice are his choice. The plagues discriminated between God's people and Pharaoh's people. The Egyptians suffered while the Israelites were spared, and so, therefore, the plagues teach the doctrine of election. God chose to place his special favor on the Israelites, even though they did not deserve it. And at the same time, he chose to leave Pharaoh in his sins. And so when Paul wanted to explain the mystery of God's sovereignty, he pointed back to the Exodus and said this in Romans 9, 16 through 18. It does not therefore depend upon man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I may display my power in you, and that by my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You see, God's grace is God's choice because the Lord is a sovereign God. Each of these lessons has practical implications for daily life. The God who sent the plagues against Egypt still rules over heaven and earth. And since he is almighty, he has the power to help us in every situation. And since the Lord is a jealous God, we must not rob him of his glory by serving other gods. And since he is just, we can wait for him to judge his enemies. And since he's merciful, he will save us when we cry for help. And since he's sovereign, he is to be feared and worshipped. Effective education always involves repetition. Like any good teacher, God repeated these lessons in the last of the plagues, which was the climax. The first nine plagues were grouped in sets of three. Each set begins with Moses going to Pharaoh and ended with a plague that came unannounced. But you see, the tenth and the deadliest plague stands alone. The death of the firstborn obviously showed God's almighty power. It was another reversal of creation. So on the sixth day of the world, God breathed life into the man he made in his image. But the tenth plague brought death to the living. This was not simply the result of disease or some other natural occurrence. Rather, it was caused by divine intervention. Scripture is specific about this in Exodus 11.1, 1, which says, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. About midnight, I will go through Egypt in verse 4 of our chapter. God's direct involvement, it shows that the 10th plague was a real and a true miracle. You see, when some scholars try to explain Exodus, they say that the plague should be viewed as pure interventions or as natural events were transformed by imagination into miracles. But what natural event could possibly explain the death of Egypt's firstborn sons? What really happened was that God himself went out in the middle of the night to visit death on the Egyptians. As a psalmist wrote in Psalm 135 verse 8, he struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of men and animals. Now in the words of Nahum Sarna, the tenth and the final visitation upon the Pharaoh and his people is the one plague for which no rational explanation can be given. It belongs entirely to the category of the supernatural. The deadliest blow came from a supernatural source revealing God's power over his creation. The Lord is truly a mighty God. And so the death of the firstborn also shows us God's jealousy. This means his absolute refusal to share his own glory with any other God. In this case, the God of death. The Egyptians were obsessed with death in the afterlife. And so anyone who has ever studied Egyptian culture knows what deliberate arrangements they made to prepare for the life to come. 
According to the Oxford Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt, the Egyptians invested a larger portion of their wealth in the afterlife than any culture in the history of the world. The great pyramids and the famous tombs in the Valley of the Kings, they stand as testimonies to their preoccupation, preoccupation with death and dying. To this day, there are mummies from ancient Egypt in museums all over the world. The god of the dead is Osiris, whose name meant the mighty one, he who has sovereign power, his assistant, Anubis, the god of the underworld. Anubis supervised the embalming process and guided the dead during their passage to the afterlife. He came in Canaan form, which incidentally may partially explain the reference to dogs in verse 7 of our chapter. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. The Israelites would remain untouched by death, thus proving that Anubis held no power over them. Meanwhile, the death of Egypt's sons would prove that Israelites' God was the Lord of life and death. And so the death of one individual was specifically significant in verse 5. The firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne. Pharaoh's son was a prince of Egypt, the next in line to sit on Egypt's throne. More than that, the Egyptians believed that he was a successor to the gods. And so when his father died, he would become the son of Ray and also the son of Osiris. And thus the Egyptians revered the life of the prince. But Moses told Pharaoh that his son would soon die. It would be the death of the next deity, the man who is expected to rule Egypt as God. The God of Israel is a jealous God. In Isaiah 48:11, God says this, I will not yield my glory to another. Claim the life of Pharaoh's son to prove that he is the only and the one true God who deserves worship and praise and glory and honor. You see, the one true God is also just, and like the rest of the plagues, the death of the firstborn was an act of divine justice. It's at this point that God is often criticized because some people question whether it was right for God to kill the sons of Egypt. Now, certainly the the tenth plague was dreadful in its severity. God said to to Moses in Exodus 11, 5-6, Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her right hand mill. And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing all throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been and ever will be. No one would be unaffected. The slave grinding grain between the two stones, the poorest of the poor will suffer loss and grief. Every Egyptian is going to suffer. The Egyptians had never suffered anything like this before and would never suffer anything like it again. Now with this plague, God would punish the Egyptians for their sins and justly so. The death of the firstborn was an act of justice because Pharaoh had tried to exterminate the Israelites. Exodus began with an attempted genocide, and it was only right for God to judge the Egyptians for their murderous intent. The wailing that went up from the Egyptians was fair punishment for the way that they had made the Israelites wail for more than 400 years. In both cases, the Bible uses the same word to describe the lament in Exodus 3.7 and Exodus 11.6. And so, according to God's perfect justice, it was Egypt's turn to cry out in distress. Now the final plague was also just because the people whom Pharaoh oppressed were the children of God. And when God first revealed his plan for plaguing the Egyptians, he told Moses to say this to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, 22-23. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let me go, so I will kill your firstborn son. 
What God did to Pharaoh was a direct response to what Pharaoh had done to him. But the justice of God goes deeper than this. The Egyptians deserved to die because they were sinners by nature and by choice. And death has always been the wages of sin. Every last one of Egypt's sons was born in sin. And like everybody else, the Egyptians sinned in Adam and thus inherited from him a sinful nature. And they compounded their guilt by committing many sins of their own, worshiping idols, oppressing their slaves, and so on and so forth. God would have been justified in putting them all to death. Now, Scripture teaches this is what everybody deserves. We are all sinners, and the proper punishment for sin is death. Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sin. And so when God chooses to claim a life, as he claimed the firstborn son of Egypt, he is always justified in doing so. Really, given God's penalty against our sin, the question is not if we are going to die, but when are we going to die? Nor can God be faulted for failing to give the Egyptians enough warning. They knew exactly that they were about to die. Well, first God sent a series of dreadful plagues, nine of them in all, to convince them of his divine power. And then finally he announced the deadliest plague of all. In the words of the old spiritual, he said, Let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Let my people go. And yet still they refused to repent. Pharaoh knew that his doom was fast approaching, and yet he failed to heed the warning of God. Well, the lesson was obvious. When death is on its way, and with death, judgment for sin, it is absolutely necessary to make things right for, with God. This is a reality that everyone must face because every human being stands under a death sentence inherited from Adam's sin. Hebrews 9.27 says that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Human beings have several basic ways of coping with death and its inevitability. The nihilist gives up entirely. He says, I don't have anything to live for anyway, so I might as well destroy myself. The hedonist tries to distract himself so he doesn't have to think about death and eternity and life. They say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The moralist tries to live the best life they can, hoping that perhaps God will accept them in the end. They say, I, I try to be a good person. What more can God ask? What most people refuse to do is the one thing that God requires, and that is to be sorry for sin. That is a deadly mistake. Sin keeps us from God, and ultimately it will condemn us to hell unless we repent. There is a frightening prophecy about this in the book of Revelation, which contains many echoes from Exodus. The plagues are coming again, sores, blood, darkness, frogs, hail, and death, in Revelation 16, 1-21. What people ought to do when they're facing divine judgment is to repent of their sins and find safety in the mercy of God. Well, instead, the Bible sadly tells us how, how people curse the name of God who had control over these plagues. They refused to repent and to glorify him in Revelation 16, 9. As an example, consider the fate of Timothy McVeigh, the terrorist who was sentenced to die for his 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Building, a federal facility in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. McVeigh was defiant to the end. Shortly before his execution on June 11, 2001, he said, If I go to hell, I'm going to have a lot of company. His last statement came from William Ernest Henley's, who lived from 1849 to 1903, poem Invictus, which reads in part, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
McVeigh was as foolish as Pharaoh. Both men were warned of their deadly fate and yet refused to bow to the authority and sovereign power of God and thus were struck down by the God of justice. Now, there is no better way to face death, that is, to cry out to God, who gives mercy to sinners who repent and believe in Christ alone. And yet, there is another perfection displayed in the last of the plagues, the mercy of God. The death of the firstborn had the merciful purpose of delivering Israel from Egypt. In Exodus 11.1, 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Thus, it was the deadliest plague that enabled the Israelites finally to escape with all their belongings. God's act of justice against Pharaoh at the same time showed mercy to his people Israel. The psalmist made this connection when he wrote in Psalm 136.1 and Psalm 136.10 when he said, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. His love endures forever. A further display of his mercy, God allowed the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians. He said to Moses in Exodus 11:2, Tell the people that the men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And then the Bible adds this comment by way of explanation in Exodus 11:3, The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So apparently some of the Egyptians had begun to fear God. They had a growing respect for the prophet Moses, whom they held in high esteem. They were coming to hold a favorable view of the chosen people of God. To translate this literally, God gave the Israelites grace in the eyes of the Egyptians. Soon they would even support the Exodus. Moses told Pharaoh, all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you, after that I will leave, in Exodus 11 to 8. In the end, the Egyptians would practically beg the Israelites to go, and this was mainly because they wanted to escape the judgment of God. So the sooner the Israelites left, the better. The Egyptians would even make sure that they did not leave empty-handed. They would, they would part with their jewelry and other valuables, anything to get rid of these plagues. Now, commentators have wondered whether it was morally appropriate for the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians. Some have accused them of theft, of borrowing without ever returning. And yet, Scripture says nothing about borrowing and no promise is ever made of return. This was a free will offering. The Israelites simply asked for silver and gold and the Egyptians handed it over because by this point, they were glad to see God's people go no matter what the cost. Scholars have also tried to explain what the silver and gold represent. Some say they were Israel's wages. God wanted to make sure that his people got paid for all the work they did in Egypt. Others say it was the price of redemption, which was always required for release from slavery. Still others considered it a form of military tribute, which God made the Egyptians pay their conquerors. Well, in any case, the silver and gold were signs of the divine favor of God. It would have been enough to escape from Egypt in one piece. But in his mercy, God arranged to provide his people with what they needed for their journey. Although, as we'll see, the plunder turned out to be a mixed blessing. God often does this. In addition to spiritual salvation, he gives his people material blessings that go far beyond what they need or even ask. 
And now when it comes to Israel's plunder, what is usually overlooked is what these gifts reveal about Egypt's spiritual condition. By his mercy, God was turning some of his enemies into friends. Many of the Egyptians had begun to believe in the existence of the one true God. They acknowledged his power and honored his prophet. They recognized the importance of treating God's people with respect and generosity. They are making spiritual progress, so much progress, in fact, that when the Israelites finally left, some of the Egyptians actually went with them in Exodus 12:38. Sadly, however, most of the Egyptians stayed in Egypt. This too is part of God's sovereign plan. As he had done in earlier plagues, he discriminated between his people and Pharaoh's people. And while the Egyptians mourned their loss, not a son would be lost in Israel. God would do this so the Egyptians would know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel in Exodus 11.7. Now, by preserving his people from harm, God was teaching the Egyptians the doctrine of election. There is an absolute difference between those who are inside and those who are outside the family of God. This distinction is drawn by the sovereign will of the Almighty God. Nevertheless, and this is one of theology's greatest mysteries, the Egyptians were responsible for their own choice to stay with their gods in Egypt. Tragically, they became familiar with the God of Israel without ever giving their lives to his service. Now, the same is true of many people who are interested in Christianity today. They spend time at church and sometimes even enjoy reading the Word of God. They respect the minister and support Christian work, and yet they never give their lives to Jesus Christ. While it is good to get acquainted with Christianity, that is never enough to get anybody into heaven. What God requires is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation comes by trusting in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And in the same way that the Egyptians needed to get out of Egypt, sinners need to leave their bondage to sin and come to Christ in saving faith. Now, there are many things to learn about God from his miracles in Egypt. He sent the plagues in order to demonstrate his power, his jealousy, his justice, his mercy, his sovereignty. In a word, God did all of it to show his glory, which is the sum of all of his perfections. The history of the plagues thus ends with a summary in Exodus 11, 9 through 10. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Now, the plagues were all part of God's plan to reveal his glory and the salvation of his people. And even Pharaoh's opposition was part of that plan. So each time he hardened his heart, God performed another miracle so as to multiply his wonders. God did it all for his glory. And the same is true of everything that God has ever done. It is all for his glory alone. Why did God make the world? It was for his glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. He made human beings for the same reason. God said in Isaiah 43, 6-7, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. And knowing that we would fall into sin, God made a plan for our salvation, and this too was for his glory. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 says, We were chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. And so to accomplish this saving plan, God sent his son into the world. God the son came to glorify God the father in the salvation of sinners. And when his work was almost finished, he said in John 17, 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. 
And now the message of salvation in Christ is spreading all over the world. And it's not going to stop until God has declared the truth of Psalm 96, verse 3. His glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. And then all the nations will give him glory, saying in Psalm 72, 18 through 19, Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Jonathan Edwards identified the glory of God as the ultimate end of God's works, the last end for which he created the world. And if that is true, indeed if it is true, that everything God has ever done is for the praise of his glory, then we too were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the first point of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, and in the face of death and in view of God's mercy, the only satisfying way to live is for the glory of God alone. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and we've looked at Exodus chapter 11. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.